Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here and worshiping with us today. If you're worshiping with us online, thank you for joining us there as well. Today, uh, we're going to continue on a series that we started a couple weeks ago. If you are here a couple weeks ago, you know we started a series focused on the life of Moses, uh, really seeing how it is that God built the life of Moses, um, who in Scripture has this incredible tagline. Everywhere in Scripture where you see Moses name listed, you oftentimes see right next to it, right afterwards, Moses, the servant of God, Moses, the servant of the Lord. And so really what we see here, and that, by the way, that's not, a, that's not a bad tagline to have next to your name. Um, and, but we see that in Moses' life, that he was considered a servant, seen as a servant, and shaped by God to be a servant. And so in this series, we're looking at really how is it that God shapes his servants. And by seeing how God does that in the life of Moses, we can then stop and say, well, God, maybe that's how you can and want to work in my life as well as we yield to him. So that's uh, why we get to do this study. And it's, it's a great opportunity for us to learn and be shaped as God's servants as well. But today I want to particularly talk to those of you who are in a place where you have experienced um, or maybe or in a place of powerlessness where you've found yourself in a spot where there's a reversal in your life. And at some level, you find yourself now in a spot where you are powerless. And that can happen in lots of different ways. It can happen financially. Perhaps you lose a job or the financial picture changes in your life. And all of a sudden, because of these reversals, you find yourself now in a very powerless place. It can happen not just financially. It can happen um, also, in, in sometimes it can happen physically, where we find ourselves in, in re, of a reversal at some level because of a diagnosis that we were not expecting, a disease, a physical condition that puts us in a place where we are not, um, that we were not expecting, and it puts us in a powerless place. It can happen in our lives relationally, where maybe you're in a spot where there's been a reversal in some of your relationships. A, a, a friend who is close is no longer so close. Uh, a, a, there's a fracture in your family. Um, you feel it, and there's been a reversal there. Maybe as a parent, um, you cannot speak into the lives of your kids right now. Um, you would like to, but right now they can't hear it. And so they're just in a place where there's this been reversal, and there's a powerlessness that you feel. And I just want to say to those of you who are in that spot or have felt in that spot that, um, that God can still meet you in that place. That God, even in the moments where you find yourself powerless, perhaps what we might say a desert season or a desert time, that God has not given up on you, that God hasn't abandoned you, that God isn't still directing you and have a plan for you. And there's no better example than that than the life of Moses. Moses, as you may know, had a great reversal in his life. He went from a position of great power to a position of great powerlessness. And yet in that time, God still was shaping Moses and working in Moses' life. And my hope is today that you get an opportunity to to see that and recognize that, yeah, even though you feel stuck and maybe in a desert place, that God is still working and working to shape you to be his servant. And so that's what we get to look at today and recognize God's faithfulness. And you may remember just now looking back at the life of Moses that Moses was born into a life of oppression and racism and genocide, that he was born a a Hebrew slave with a death warrant over his head. Um, He was born a Hebrew into an Egyptian world, and the Egyptians were threatened by the Hebrews. 
Um, not only did they see them as, as less than human, and they uh, sub- subjected them to slavery, they also saw them as a threat. And so the, the Pharaoh issued an edict that all Hebrew baby boys should be killed, thrown into the Nile to be eaten by the crocodiles because they were so concerned that those boys might grow up to become an army and, and, and lead a revolt against the Egyptians. And so this is the world that Moses grew up in. It's a broken world, a messy world. And I just stop and just say this, and I said it a couple weeks ago, especially for those of you who find yourself with a, a maybe less than neat and tidy background, that you're, you know, you're just, the history of your life is kind of has some messiness and some brokenness to it. I'll just say this, that your history does not have to determine your destiny. And Moses is such a great example of that. A guy who was born into um, such a broken world and such a, 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 a messy background. But God amazingly transforms all of that. Moses' parents, his birth parents, were able to hang on to him and, and to raise him for the first dozen years of his life. And they, uh, in that time, they instilled in him this sense, that this, this reality, that he is a child of God. And as a, as a child of God, um, if he, you yield to God, um, you can become a man of destiny. But you always need to remember to yield to God. But then he had this dual and conflicting reality because then he was brought into the, the, the house of Pharaoh. And the message in the house of Pharaoh was this, that you are a child of Pharaoh who is a God. Therefore, you don't have to yield to anyone. You can do whatever you want. And sadly, at some point, Moses listened to that, and he found himself stuck in a desert, a desert place. And that's where, um, that's, that's where, he, where he finds himself, and it, in many ways to us, is very, very relatable, because many of us fi- have found ourselves or find ourselves in a desert place, a place where we are wondering, God, where are you, where are you at, and where are you working, and how are you working in my life, because things just flipped on me. And here I am in this powerless place. And for some of you here, you don't know how you got there. For others of you, you do know how you got there because it's a desert of your own making, which is even harder. But again, we look to the life of Moses and find encouragement because even in that place, God still can redeem. God still wants to work and he wants to shape us to be his service just as he did in the life of Moses. And so what what I want to do today is, is... kind of look back a little bit from what we talked about last week and see how it is that, that Moses left Egypt and then see what he learns then in a desert season of his life and then the, the longing of God's people. But first we need to look back and to do that we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn in your, in your Bible to Exodus chapter 2. Um, if you didn't bring your Bible, hopefully we have that handout that you received on your way in here. It has the passage printed for you. But once you find that, please stand and we'll read this passage together. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It says this, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out where to where his own people were and watched them in their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Moses, when, sorry, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. Whoa, seven daughters. The woe is not in the original manuscript, by the way, but this, don't let that swing by, you know, seven daughters. Can you imagine the battle for the bathroom alone in that household, okay? So not good. All right. <laughs> and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, uh, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Royal asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. You have a feeling he wants to marry off one of those daughters right now, don't you? Yeah. Um, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry, for help, uh, their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Well, like I said, this is really, um, there's, it's kind of like a three-act play that's going on here. There's the, the leaving of uh, Moses leaving Egypt. There's the learning time in the desert. And then there's the longing of God's people. And so three different acts, but together, they, they really do work together to help us understand what's going on here. So um, last week, we're going we're gonna to go back to some of the verses we talked about last week because it really helps set the stage and helps us see that, that first act. So looking at verse 11, it says this, one day after Moses had grown up, now, just as a reminder, by G Moses growing up, he grew up in these kind of two different worlds that kind of come, come together. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh, where he received this incredible education, everything from fine arts to military training. He grew up in a place of power and prestige and, and, and uh, just a privilege, all of these things. But at the same time, before all of that, he was raised in um, by his parents and in, by being raised by his birth parents who are Hebrew. Again, they instilled in him that you're a Hebrew. That is, you're a descendant of Abraham. And Abraham received this promise from God that the, 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 the Israelites would be uh, given a, a, a land, a, the promised land, and that they would be a great people and that there would be a deliverer who would come from the seed of Abraham. But the reality is none of those things have yet been fulfilled. And so he has this kind of dual understanding, this reality of growing up with this, this understanding that God has a plan, that he is going to bring a deliverer. And with that awareness, and as a prince of Egypt seeing all the oppression of the Hebrew people, I mean, who better to step in as a deliverer than Moses? And this seems like probably a good time as he's grown up to nominate himself to be that deliverer. 
Because who better, a guy who's been, uh, has all the power and privilege of, of, of uh, the royal household of, of the Egyptians. He's had an incredible education. He has great skill and capacity. He cares for his people. So why not step in? And so again, he sort of nominates himself to step in and, and deliver the people at this time. And all he needs is an event or a moment to make his move to step in as a deliverer. And the last part of verse 11, it says this. That he went out um, where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his own people. So again, he knows that God has a plan, that God's made a promise to his people. And he sees his people being oppressed, so his compassion is there. He sees one of his fellow Hebrews being beaten, so justice uh, comes out, this outrage of justice, and so he steps in. And we see what he does in the next verse. It says this, looking this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses, looking this way and that, seeing no one. Oh, Moses, you look to the right, you look to the left, but you didn't look up. And who here hasn't committed the sin of Moses at some point? Where there's a problem and we look to the left, we look to the right, we look to our own resources, we look around and we don't look up, but we do our own thing. That's what Moses does. And after that then, as he's kind of gone his own way, managing things his way, not God's way, um, he then tries to hide the evidence because he kills the Egyptian and he tries to hide him in the sand, which, by the way, killing an Egyptian was not part of God's plan. That was, it was uh, outside of what God wanted. So then, then verse 13, the next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrews? So he goes back the next day after he, he does this act to defend and protect and step in and be the deliverer, he comes back the next day and he sees two Hebrews fighting now. He says, why are you guys fighting? You're brothers. And so he's, he's struggling with this and he's, he steps in again to, to rescue, to, to, live, to deliver, be their leader. Verse 14, he has a shocking response. The man said, who made you ruler and judge over, the, over us? So First of all, Moses is not used to this kind of back talk. He's a prince of Egypt. And to have a slave talk back to a prince of Egypt, I mean, if that ever happened, you'd be a dead man. Um, that just wasn't, was, not, was not normal. But this guy is saying, hey, who made you ruler? Who, who died and made you Pharaoh? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. So the guy looks at him and says, hey, listen, we know who you are. You're, you're not, you, you, you're parading as a, as a prince of, of Egypt, but you're, 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 made of the, you're made of slave material, same as me. So no respect in that sense, and they're not ready to turn or be changed. And so Moses realized, hey, this isn't good. What I've done has become known, and certainly it has. Look at the next verse. It says this, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Why? Because um, when Pharaoh finds out that one of the members of his household is killing Egyptians and leading a slave revolution, that's not good. And so he's going after Moses at this point, and Moses then flees, says Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So he gets out of the area. He flees. It's amazing how your life can be reversed in just a 48-hour period of time. Am I right? And here, this guy, Moses, 
is in this completely different spot, and now he's fleeing, and he's left, and he's gone to Midian. In order to help you understand where he's gone and how far he's gone, I brought a map so you can see um, where Egypt is. This is the area of Egypt. Egypt, he's gone all the way down to the area of Midian, across the Sinai Peninsula. And Midian, by the way, the Midianite people are nomadic people, so they'd go up and down the area. But the point is this, that he's gone far outside of the boundary of Egypt. And it says that he leaves Egypt and goes all the way to Midian and he sits down by a well, which is a kind of a, a sad picture, real, really, because there's just something to be said about the um, Egyptian, uh, sorry, Middle Eastern culture, by the way, hospitality is a big deal. And for someone who's a foreigner to come into a new community, immediately that community would be talking amongst themselves saying, who's going to take care of this person? Because hospitality um, is a big deal. And if you didn't show hospitality to a foreigner, you'd bring shame upon your community. But even if there's someone who um, maybe is less desirable to bring into your home, eventually someone in the community would do it because they have to. Otherwise, again, like I said, it would bring shame. But here Moses shows up and not a single person wants to bring in a guy with a pharaoh suit into their home, okay? So they're like, they're not touching him. He's there, isolated, alone, by the well in Midian. Which, by the way, would be a good time for him to do a little processing, don't you think? I mean, if you were Moses... And you found yourself with this, this great reversal in your life. A prince of Egypt, now the stranger sitting in this foreign land by a well and no one wants to take you in. It's a good time to think. It's a good time to reflect. And you and I would be doing the same thing. We'd be reflecting on the fact, how did I get here? What just happened? And it's in that reflection time that it's a good time for Moses to learn And there's some lessons that Moses needs to learn. One of the lessons is this, that it's possible to be very right and very wrong at the same time. It's possible to know, yes, God wants a deliverer, and I could be that deliverer, but maybe not at this time does God want me to be his deliverer. That he has a task, but it's maybe not in his timing. That he knows the message and truth of God, that God has made a promise to his people, but this wasn't the right method that God wants him to use. And so again, it's yielding to God in his way, not managing things our way. It's a hard lesson to learn, but very relatable for sure. And this is part of what he's reflecting on. And here he is in this point. And what the good news is, is that when we find ourselves kind of managing things our way or, you know, again, having the right message but not the right method that we have the great gift of confession that we can come clean and god can use it and this is a point where moses has a turning point a little bit in his life where he's gone from leaving egypt to now learning and so he has a moment where he has to leave what's behind and move forward and learn and this is an important thing for all of us by the way if we want to learn um, we sometimes have to leave things behind don't we and many of us here have a history that we aren't so proud of We have certain things in our past, certain things in our background, certain things in our history um, that we aren't so thrilled about. But here's the good news. God can redeem your history. God can turn things around. He can reclaim it. He can reuse it. But here's what you need to know. You need to leave it. God wants to change your history. He wants to change your future, but you have to leave it behind. But sometimes what we do is we want to drag our history with us or the things that in our past, take it with us and ask God to bless it. But there comes a point when God said, you need to leave it. 
And for Moses, he had, he, as a point where he said, I got to leave the old way of thinking, the old way of behaving, and I need to learn what it is that God wants me to learn. So he's left Egypt. He's in a place of learning. The question is, what is it that Moses needs to learn in this desert time? And so that's what the next act is, the learning in the, in the desert. Verse 16, it says this. Now a priest of Midian who had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. So he's in this place called Midian, which, by the way, the Midianites um, were, were distant relatives of, fair, of, uh, of Moses. He did not know that. But Abraham had a second wife, Keturah, you can read about it in Genesis 25. But he had a second wife. And so there's, there's, there, his, those, those descendants are related. And so there's some relation there. But, but Moses is coming in going, I don't know these people. And they're looking at him going, he's a, an Egyptian. That's all they see of him. And so there's, they don't really understand some of those things. But here's what Moses does understand. He's looking at these women who are coming there, and he's, they're bringing flocks. That is, they're shepherds. They, they, they're tending flocks. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Egyptians despise shepherds. I don't know if you know that. They hated shepherds. They despised them. So he was raised in the Egyptian uh, you know, household, in the house of Fared, to despise shepherds. They're nasty people. That's what he was raised at. And you don't believe me? You go back even to Joseph um, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 46. He's talking to his family when they're coming to Egypt. Listen to what he says to his family. He said, you should answer. Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen for all shepherds are detestable to Egyptians. So this is Joseph. He knows the Egyptians. He knows the culture. Egyptians do not like shepherds. And the question is, why? What is it that Egyptians have against shepherds? And I'll tell you, Egyptians got hung up on hair. They really don't like hair. And sheep are hairy. Did you know that? <laughs> and so they struggle with hair. In fact, you, you see Egyptians, you see their images, you know, they have the headdress and the beard and all that. But um, all that is fake, by the way. You take all that stuff off and they're shaved, they're bicked. It's, all, it's just a bald head, right? So they do not like hair at all. Um, and that's just, that's just it. And so it kind of it freaks them out. In fact, um, I, um, I'll just say this. If you're a cat person here, and I'll be nice, I promise, Okay. <laughs> I talked to a couple of people, this, the couple of dear people this last week about um, cats, and they were like, what are the odds of the new lead pastor um, uh, having something against cats and the old lead pastor having something against cats? And um, I don't know. For me, you know, Pastor Phil, I've always had, you know, high regard for him. But when I found that out, I just even higher, you know what I mean? I just all that much more respect and admiration for this man. Truly, truly, um, so much there that's relatable. Now, um, but I will, I'll be kind. Let me just say this. If you're a cat person, though, you know that there's a type of cat called the Sphinx cat. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Sphinx cat, it's considered a hairless cat. I brought a picture of a Sphinx cat. You can see it here. Cute little guy, right? Maybe. Depends on, on how you view cats, all right? So this is a Sphinx cat, considered a hairless cat. Now, um, 
The Sphinx had, it it comes from that whole concept of the Egyptians not liking hair. And so this is, again, the kind of the the Sphinx cat is that kind of representation of of a hairless cat that would be an adorable cat to anyone who's an Egyptian. They would love this cat. Um, That's that's the reality. Now, I'll I'll stop there for a moment. (laughs) We'll go on. Um, But the whole concept is this, that Egyptians had a low view of shepherds. They didn't like all the hair. They just, it was, it was disgusting, detestable to them. And so when Moses is sitting there by the well and the shepherds show up, um, not to mention that they're women, so that didn't even register in his economy at some level, and that they're shepherds, I mean, what's going to happen next? And then we see what happens next. Um, in verse uh, uh, 17, some shepherds came along and drove them away. That is, some shepherds came along and drove the women away. All these, the girls who were trying to water their father's flock, drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. So here it is. All that military training finally kicks in for Moses, okay? And he is like Chuck Norris and Jason Bourne, all like combined together. He, you know, is a one-man army. He gets these shepherds out of the way. But notice this, no killing this time. So he's learning. He's growing. No burying in the sand. So um, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tough guy. And he fends off these shepherds and protects these women. Then you've got to picture the shock of this. Here's a guy in a pharaoh suit who's now huffing water and, and watering the flocks for these girls. And so just an incredible scene um, that takes place in this moment. They're so shocked, they go back to home, and um, this is what they say to their father. When the girls return to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early? So that's the tip-off, so early. They're used to, he's used to them coming later because this is a, a regular occurrence that the women be, be pushed aside by these shepherds. So he's like, why are you home so early? Their answer in verse uh, 19 is this. They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So he's like, Dad, the craziest thing, this Egyptian, Egyptian hops out, starts doing some, you know, kung fu, and um, these, the shepherds go away, and then he waters, our, waters the, um, the, the flocks for us. It's an incredible thing. Then verse 20, it says this, And where is he, Roha asked his daughters, Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So now all of a sudden, Eastern hospitality kicks in. Right? The ethnic uh, prejudice has gone aside. It's like, hey, this guy's defending my daughters. Um, bring him in. Let's, let, let, I, I want to meet him. And so he comes in verse 21. It says this. And Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Now, in this verse, by the way, there's a little bit more of a... a compressed history. So this is a summary verse. It wasn't just that Moses showed up for dinner and the conversation was, hey, here, have another lamb chop and pick a daughter to be your wife. You know, it wasn't like bang that fast. Okay. This is stepping back and this is a bit more of a progression where he does come into the household of Ruel. And over the course of time, he marries uh, one of his daughters, Zipporah in marriage. Then verse 22. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So he, um, <clears throat> he comes to, come to this place, and again, this is a, now uh, a bit more of a stretched you know, summary of what's going on during these 40 years in the desert, that here he is in this, in this desert time, and uh, he 
is married and he has a son and he says he uses the name of the son to kind of ex- express where he's at he's a foreigner in a foreign land so here he is lots to learn the question is what are some of the lessons that he has been learning in the desert um, what are the lessons that he's been learning and this is an important thing for us to get because I know it's easy for us to skip over the fact that Moses spent 40 years in the desert you know there's uh, there's the next moment for us typically in our minds going from Egypt is to the burning bush. And we jump to that because the burning bush is super fascinating and interesting. But the reality is Moses spent 40 years in a desert before he got to that burning bush. And what we want to focus on sometimes is the burning bush moments because that's the fascinating thing. But here's the truth and the reality. Most of us here are more likely to spend time in the desert than we are to spend time chatting with a burning bush. Am I right? And Moses, God was shaping Moses for 40 years before he got to the burning bush. And so we can't skip over the fact that there was 40 years of God shaping Moses to be his servant, to get to the place of the burning bush, to say, yes, now I'm ready to send you. And it's important for us to hear because we also find ourselves oftentimes being developed and shaped in the, in the mundane, everyday experiences because we don't have burning bush experiences every day. Am I right? But it's the desert experience we can relate to. The question is, what is he learning in the desert? Here's a couple of lessons that he learns in the desert. First of all, you can serve without being superior. You can serve without being superior. That is, um, Moses um, steps in to serve, and that's a good thing, but he doesn't do it in a place of superiority. See, when he was uh, kind of stepping in to save his fellow Hebrews back in Egypt, he was doing it as a prince of Egypt. So, hey, I'm serving you, but look at me. I am the prince. I'm here to be your deliverer. So there's a sense of superiority there. Here he is now in the desert. It's like you're an equal footing, man. This is like you're just a guy and a foreigner in a foreign land, but he still chooses to serve. And some people here, some of us here need to be reminded that to, to serve others is a good thing, but we don't have to do it from a place of authority, that we don't have to say, hey, I'm above you somehow in order to be able to serve you, that we can serve people from, from a low, low position, a, a equal, equal footing. And this is what he does. But the second part is goes with it. He rescues without recognition. That is, before, I think he was expecting in Egypt at some level for him to step in and rescue the Hebrews, lead a slave result, revolt, and everyone say, wow, Moses, you're great. Look what you did. You're, you're God's deliverer. But here he is in a much more humbled position where it's not, hey, ladies, I, I just served you, but remember, here, are, here I am, Pharaoh suit, my name, all that kind of stuff. There's no recognition at all. He's just simply serving. He's in a different place. And that is what God can use the desert for to help us get into that humble and serving place to be his servant. Then, uh, then the third lesson is this. You can prepare just by being patient. You can prepare just by being patient. And this is a a fascinating thing because God's preparation for Moses, for that burning bush moment, was 40 years. That requires a tremendous amount of patience, doesn't it? And what was Moses' job to do in all of that? It was just to wait. It was to be patient and allow God to shape him, to, to learn to grow. And so it required 
patience in that time. And here's what's important for us to know, because sometimes we know what God wants to do, or we want, you know, God to do, and we're like, well, someone's got to jump in and do it. We want to take control, do it on our own. But God doesn't need you, by the way. He doesn't need me, by the way. He wants to use us, but he's very competent and capable all on his own. And so when we are patient and say, God, we want to be used by you, be your servant, we are patiently waiting for his plan, his purposes, his way. And so Moses is in this time of preparation, of waiting, and it's actually part of God's protection in our life sometimes, because we want to charge ahead. But what Moses needed was more development. He needed more shaping. He needed more. He just, God was doing a work to to develop him and prepare him for the work he had. And so it really was a protection for Moses and it's a protection for us at times when God brings us to a point of being in the desert because sometimes we have to be brought into a barren place, a desert place in order to learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. That we have to be in a place where we're powerless in order for us to look up and say, God, you're powerful. Now he can begin to use you. But sometimes it just takes that parent barren place, the desert place that God needs to use to prepare us. But at the same time that God is preparing Moses, um, he's also preparing his people, which is the, really the third part of, um, <clears throat> of this story. In verse 23, it says this, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. So long period, yes, 40 years, that's a long period. It says, then the king of Egypt died. Um, that is the, the, the most of the third reigned for a very long time. He did die. Now new regime, new family. And now it's really time that Moses can come back because the old family, the old regime um, is gone. New one in. So it, it's, it's, uh, God is preparing Egypt and his people for Moses to return. Then it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So God's also preparing his people to be rescued. The people, when Moses first showed up and said, I'm going to be your deliverer, they were not ready. But here in this passage, it says they're ready now. They're groaning. They're ready. And it says, in fact, that they call out to God and God hears their prayers, that God hears their calling out to him, which is a fascinating thing, by the way, because the, the, the Hebrew people had been slaves for a, lot of, a long time, a lot of years, but this is the first recorded prayer of the people crying out to God in the midst of their slavery, which seems crazy, right? And I would judge them, but the problem is I think I'm too much like them, that I wait too long to pray, that so often a problem comes into my life, and maybe you can relate, a problem comes into my life, and I'm like, well, what resources do I have? Who can I turn to? How can I fix this? We do a bunch of things. None of them work, and at the end we say, oh, we should probably stop and pray about this, right? Have you been there before? It's, it's super relatable. So I'm not judging them that they've been prayerless for so many years because I find myself, and maybe you have too, finding yourself looking to the left, looking to the right, not looking up, saying, God, we need you, um, and trying to manage it on our own. But here, finally, they do look up, and they do pray, pray, pray. But here's the great thing. God doesn't reject them, say, why haven't you been praying for the past hundreds of years, you know? God says, okay, I'm ready to respond. And that's the beautiful thing. And we see God responding in verse 24 and 25. I just highlight some of the verbs just so you can see God's heart for those who turn to him. It says this in verse 24, God heard their groaning. 
Um, that is, he hears our groaning. He hears our pain. He hears your pain. He's not, um, he's not uh, uninterested or removed from you in your, your desert place, in the, the place of barrenness in your life. He hears their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. So he remembers, what does he remember? He remembers his promises that he made. He's not remembering the broken promises that we've made because we are a fickle people. We make promises and we break them. Aren't you so glad that God doesn't remember all our broken promises before he decides to act? But instead, he looks to his promises, his faithfulness. He remembered his covenant with with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So he sees them, he's concerned about them, and he acts. Isn't this good news? For any and every one of us who find ourselves in a perilous place, find ourselves in a desert place, God hears, he remembers, he sees, and he acts. This is good news. So there's two things happening here. God is shaping Moses in the desert, and he's preparing his people to be delivered from Egypt. And I just want to stop for a moment and go swing back over to Moses and say, okay, what are the tools that God used to shape Moses in the desert to prepare him to deliver the people out of Egypt? What are those tools? And I'll just give you three tools that God uses to shape Moses in the desert. And they're tools that are important to see because they're the same tools that God wants to use in your, use in your life and my life, and they may shock you. So let me just show you the, the tools that God used. The first one is this, where Moses lived. God wanted to use where Moses lived to help shape him to be his servant to deliver his people. Well, where did he live? He lived in Midian. He lived with the Midianites. The Midianites were nomadic people. So Moses, for 40 years, lived with nomadic people in the desert. He learned geography. He learned topography. He learned, okay, where do you find water in a desert when you're struggling? He he learned how to live and navigate in a desert land. Do you think that would come in to be useful at some point in Moses' life in the way that God wants to use him ultimately? You bet. So God's using where he lives to prepare him. And also, by the way, Moses says, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. land. That is, I know what it is to be a, a displaced and devalued person. And so now Moses, the guy who is a prince of Egypt, knows what it's like to be displaced and be devalued based on just simply where he lives. So God's using that as a tool to shape him to be his servant. The second tool that God uses to shape Moses is this, who he lived with. Isn't it amazing that God not only wants to use where we live, but also the people that we live with to shape us? That God wants to use the people around you and in your life to shape you? Uh, to be, to be uh, who he wants you to be, that sometimes that's to rub off some of those hard and, and uh, you know, jagged parts of our life, that he wants to use people to mentor you, to step in, to encourage you. Um, Moses, by the way, got to um, get connected with Ruel, um, who later you'll, you'll, know, uh, you'll know as Jethro, who was his father-in-law, who mentored him for 20 years, helped Moses, stepped into Moses' life when he was acting foolishly, and gave him advice, wise counsel. So God uses the people that he brings into our life to shape us. Um, and that's an important thing for us to see, that tool that God wants to use in our life, the people around us. Then third, where Moses worked. Where Moses worked is the other tool that God used. So there was a job change for Moses. Um, 
by the way. He went from a pharaoh in training to a shepherd in training. And it sounds like a bit of a demotion, doesn't it? But God's, God's purposes are much bigger than all of that. And God needed to and wanted to change his job because he wanted to shape him for the job that he ultimately had for him. And so he brought him to a place where now he's a shepherd in training and he's working in a, in a for 40 years he's been working with flocks, um, with, with flocks of sheep. And I don't know if you know this or not um, because in the Bible it talks so often about us people um, being the sheep of, of God, the, the, you know, the the sheep and the pasture of God. You know what I'm talking about? Like Psalm 100, for instance, talks about we are, the, we are sheep of the, of the shepherd. And that talks about that lots of different places, but I don't know if you know this or not, but that's not a high praise um, to be called a sheep and to be called lambs. Um, because I don't know if you know this or not, but sheep are, are dumb. They are not smart animals. Um, in fact, sheep, by the way, they have to be led to food. Can, can, isn't that crazy? They're, they're not that, they just have to be led to food. Sheep also, by the way, um, are, uh, they're, they constantly wander. Their GPS is set to lost. And so they're just, they're constantly going all, all sorts, all over the place. And so you not only have to lead them to food, you have to kind of regather them because they're just, oh, oh, oh. You have to constantly gather them, keep them together. So they're, you have to be led to food. They're constantly getting lost. And then, by the way, sheep are utterly defenseless. You know that? You don't have, there's no sheep that know Kung Fu, right? They, they really, they are utterly defenseless. So here Moses for 40 years, is learning how to lead and shepherd and guide sheep that wander, that are defenseless, that, are, that are, get, are stubborn. And do you think that would be useful for Moses later on in his, his, the purpose that God has for him? Yes. So God's using his place of work and the change of job to shape him to be who God wants him to be. So these are the tools that God wants to use in Moses' life, then the tools that God wants to use in our life as well. And the amazing thing is, again, that God can use the powerless places in our life, the desert moments in our life to shape us. That he hasn't stopped working, that he hasn't stopped his plan and his purposes because it's easy in moments like that to say, God, what are you doing? I was a prince and now I'm a shepherd. This does not make sense to me. But God still has a plan. He's still working out his purposes. And as he's shaping Moses, he's also preparing his people. Because he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he acts. That's who God is. And there's no clearer picture of that than what God did for us through Jesus Christ. That each one of us, like sheep, have wandered and gone astray. But God doesn't step back and say, yep, have fun in the desert. I'm going to leave you there forever. But in fact, God stepped in and said, I want to be your shepherd. And I love you so much, I'm willing to, se- to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to sacrifice for your sins, your brokenness, your wandering, your propensity for disobedience and rebellion. I will take it upon myself. That's what Jesus did for us. And through faith in the work of Jesus Christ, we can be made right with God and we can be led by God and be brought into um, eternal dwelling with him because of his grace and his goodness. Nothing to do with us, everything to do with him. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Let's take a moment and let's thank God for that, okay? God, we do want to just come into this time of prayer.
and just recognize that you are a God who hears, a God who remembers, a God who sees, a God who acts. And God, we oftentimes cannot see it. And so it's helpful to see in the life of Moses how you are working and how you didn't abandon him, how you didn't abandon your people, how you are shaping him, preparing them. God, help us as, as people today to be reminded to look up and see you as our good shepherd who wants to guide us, lead us, who has made provisions for us when we do fall, when we do stray, when we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. We thank you for that. And God, for those here today, particularly who find themselves in a desert place, God, I pray that you would encourage them. God, I pray that you would remind them that you're working. I pray that you would allow them to see the people that you've put around them to help shape them, encourage them. I pray that they would reach out, not just to you, but to those that you are provided to be a part of how you want to encourage and shape and help us. God, help us to be a people that continue to seek you and follow you and that you can continue to work in us to be your servants, God. We pray this in your name. Amen.